Praise the Lord. Unsafe places. Following this man will lead you into unsafe places. We are continuing our journey this morning through the book of James. So if you want to open your Bibles this morning to chapter 5. James chapter 5. And in case this is your first time with us, James is a New Testament book. It's only five chapters long, located near the back of your book. And it's basically a how-to book for Christians for Christian life advice. And I say that deliberately because this is not just life advice. This is not Dr. Phil. This is the book of James. The reason I say that to you this morning is because Christian advice is different than just life advice. Because if you don't first put your faith in Jesus Christ... While there's some helpful things that you can get from this book, you're not really going to understand exactly what James is getting at because Christians live a different life than everybody else does. And he takes these five chapters to describe what life looks like through the lens of Christianity. We've titled this series, Unsafe Places, because the world doesn't see things the way you see them. Their opinions don't match your opinions. They don't think that you are speaking a language that coincides with their feelings and their opinions. And so they want to shut the message down because they don't agree with it. Because of that, we find ourselves often living, operating, going to school, going to work, trying to witness in unsafe places. And that's why we titled the series the way we did. So... James takes five chapters to describe what the life of someone who believes in Jesus should look like, and he gives us very specific situations. Now, this Sunday, June 5th, is Pentecost Sunday. Amen. Okay. So this is Pentecost Sunday. That means it's been 40 days since Resurrection Day. That means that this is the day that uh, the Holy Spirit descended in the upper room, that the uh, believers in Christ were first filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are a Pentecostal church. Now, I'm, I'm going to take some time here in the beginning to kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to get into in James this morning because what James has done every week is he has caused us to examine our lives to see if what we have is a living faith. And this is the phrase that James uses. He calls it a living faith, which basically means this. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, yes, Jesus changes your life, but what does that really look like? What does it really look like to say your life has been changed? Well, if you're a Christian... Jesus should change everything about you. And, and that's easy to say, but some of you looking at me saying, well, my eyes are still blue. I still wear the same shy shoe. I, I, I didn't lose any weight. Would be to God. You know how easy it would be to get people saved? If we could just say, come up to the altar and lay down your burdens and 20 pounds. I mean, that would be a great evangelism tool, would it not? <laughs> but, but, but. When Jesus changes your life, here's what he changes. He, according to James, we've already talked about from James chapter 1 until last week, we've talked about how he ought to change your conversations. He ought to change the way you interact with one another. He ought to change the way you think about things. He even said he ought to change your tongue. And, and so far we've looked at how Christians should look at trouble 
how we should receive trouble, how we'd respond to adversity, how we confront things like prejudice and racism, and how we talk, how we should manage our money. He talked about all kinds of topics. So today we're going to finish uh, looking at this kind of concept, and we're going to finish this book between now and Father's Day. Father's Day is going to be the last sermon of this series. Next week is going to be different. Next week and the, la and the last week, which is Father's Day, is going to be a two-part uh, sermon uh, based on the same passage. We're going to finish James in the next three weeks. But this morning we're going to begin with James chapter 5, verse 7. Dear brothers and sisters, that's everybody, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other's husbands and wives. I mean brothers and sisters. Or you will be judged. For look, the judge, and notice, it, notice with me on verse 9, that when it says, don't judge one another or you will be judged, that is a lowercase j. And then it says, for look, the judge, and that judge is capitalized. That's a special judge. That, that's, a, that's a judge unlike any other judge. And he stands at the door. Verse 10, for examples of patience in suffering. I want you to underline that. If you have a Bible, underline those three words, patience in suffering. That is going to be the, the crux of my text this morning. My entire message is going to be based on the idea of how to have patience in suffering. Dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Mm -hmm. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Mm. So I'm going to ask a question to begin this morning. How many of you are suffering? And I think every one of us could probably raise our hands. And if you're not suffering, just give it a minute. And if you're not suffering, you love someone who is suffering, and you are suffering on their behalf. Somebody say amen. Does anybody know what it feels like to suffer in proxy for somebody else? Yes, amen. Every parent in the room knows what it feels like to be suffering because one of your babies is suffering. And anything that does not help you prepare for the realities of life is not helpful. Will you say amen to that? Because this morning I'm going to tell you that a lot of what we have been taught through Christian radio and Christian television and Christian stations through the years has just not been helpful. I grew up on the prosperity gospel. I grew up when all of the people was naming and claiming and grabbing and blabbing. And, and, and they made you feel inadequate at the church if you had any kind of suffering. If you brought any kind of trouble into the church, you didn't have enough faith. Or you wasn't praying right. Or, as we're going to examine this morning, you had some kind of sin in your life. And they made it sound so simple. Just believe the text, quote the text, snatch the text, and all of your life will be easy peasy lemon squeezy. The problem is, I believed it, 
but I wasn't able to live it. I believed it. I quoted it. I did, I, when people would come up to me and start talking about, oh, I have a cold. Uh, don't, don't, don't claim that. Don't, 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 claim, don't claim that you're sick, but, but I have a bronchial infection and I need some z pack. No, 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 no. Don't say that you're sick. Well, I'm just telling you. No, 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 no. Well, I've got to go to the hospital and have a surgery. They're going to take my... No, 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 don't claim it. And I would tell people, don't, don't come up and start telling me bad news. I, don't claim it. And I believed that stuff. The problem was I started living. And I found out that my life wasn't matching my profession, and neither was anybody else's that I knew. I didn't know one person that had a Learjet. I didn't know one person that didn't have trouble in their marriage and or with their children and or at the job and or with their health. Even though we were all claiming prosperity and health, we wasn't seeing it. And, and so I started digging into the Bible, and here's what I found. Anything that does not prepare me for the reality of life is not helpful. And you know what? The Bible is the most honest book that's ever been written. Because it talks about pain and problems and perils and suffering and the way that life kicks you around in the world now and in the perfection of the world to come. And here's what it tells you. You're going to go through a whole lot of mess in this life, but I'm going to give you the grace to endure it all, and you can make it. Amen. So I used to view life like a bunch of ups and downs. Good seasons, bad seasons. Good times, hard times. I used to view life in just such a way. And, and, and here's what I used to feel like. If I can just make it through. Does anybody remember the old song, uh, I'm just a weary pilgrim? Anybody remember singing that in the old church? I'm just a weary pilgrim. Boy, isn't that encouraging? I'm just a weary pilgrim trying to, oh, if I can just hold on one more minute. And I used to feel like that. I used to feel like if I can just survive this rough time, I got a brighter day coming. But I've lived long enough to know life's not really like ups and downs, ins and outs. It's more like railroad tracks. And by that I mean everywhere I am at all points, there are good and bad, highs and lows, ins and outs, blessings and cursings, and they're all present at the same time, and I can touch either side from where I am. I've lived enough days to know this. I'll find exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, it all got quiet in here because I know some of you are mad at the husband, and some of you are mad at the boss, and some of you are mad at the government, and some of you are mad at the wife, and some of you are mad at the kids. But I'm telling you that you'll find exactly what it is that you're looking for because it's all within your reach depending on the attitude that you approach things with. There's blessing and cursing, the Bible says. There's wins and losses. There's joy and tears. And the truth of the matter is, there are days when I have felt absolutely blessed beyond measure in my life, inexplicably blessed of God. And on the same day, other parts of my life will feel like the curse of all of hell is living upon either my children or my marriage. Listen, I've known, I've known seasons in my life where my ministry was going great and my marriage wasn't so good. Or my marriage was really good, but the ministry was suffering. Y'all are not going to help me, but I'll be the honest Christian in the room today. And sometimes I'll tell you that it's been the best of times and the worst of times all at the same time in my life. I have had blessing and cursing so close that I can feel them both in the same day. You catch me in the morning and say, how you doing, Pastor? Great. Catch me about three hours later. How you doing, Pastor? Pray for me. 
multiple personalities. I'm the same fella. It's just I'm facing something now that I wasn't facing then, and it's the same life and nothing changed. It's just I can touch both sides from where I am. So I know that suffering comes, but how does it come? Well, it comes in many shapes and sizes. That's why you should never be judging other people's suffering because some of you are suffering in, with emotional problems. Some of you are suffering with physical things. We, we've been uh, having another round of, of COVID, and, and people are going through that. There's spiritual suffering people are enduring. There's mental suffering and marriage problems and parental suffering and all the parents... If you're a parent, you signed up for a, a lifetime of suffering. I'm, I'm just here to spread good news this morning and encourage you along the way. Some of you aren't just suffering in one category, but you've got multiple categories that you're suffering in. Somebody say amen. So our goal today through this, through this uh, passage through James is to look through the lens that James gives us so that you would learn to look through your suffering and see that there's something for you to focus on besides what you're going through. Somebody say amen. So let's break this down. We're going to start with a word that you all are experts in. Verse 7. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient. You like that word? Does anybody like that word? Now, I don't like patience and I'm not great at it, but I'm better than some of y'all. Because some of y'all yell at the microwave because it's too slow. I, you're, the same, <laughs> you're the same person that thinks the speed limit is a good suggestion for folks that ain't got nowhere to be. Your three favorite things is fast, faster, and fastest. That's your three favorite so, so some of you are worse at it than I am, and even I don't like the word patience. But here, listen to what James says. He says, brothers and sisters, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He said, until Jesus comes back. How long do I have to be patient? Until Jesus comes back. Only until then. And then time will stop. And you won't need patience anymore. He says, be patient until, until Jesus comes back, be patient. How long ago did James write this? I'm glad you asked. 2,000 years. So 2,000 years ago, he said, be patient until Jesus comes. That's a lot of patience. That's 2,000 years worth of patience. And then he says it like this. See how a farmer waits for the harvest? Being patient about it until he receives what he was looking for. Now, I grew up not on Grandma and Grandpa's farm, but I was voluntarily, involuntarily drafted onto Grandma's farm, which means that every time they said, go, we're going to Grandma's, I went, ugh. Most people are excited to go see their grandparents, right? When they say, let's go to Grandma and Grandpa's house, yay! Not me. Because I knew I was planting taters, digging taters, cleaning taters, putting up taters, throwing hay. I, was going, I did not go to Grandma's house just to hang out eat snacks, and listen to Grandma's stories of days of yonder. I was there for manual labor. He is not just an evangelist from Mexico. I was him and he was me. Here we were growing up on Grandma's farm, and farming will teach you patience. Parenting will teach you patience. 
Why? Because there's nothing you can do to speed up the process. Hello? Some of you haven't had any children, but if you ever tried to plant something, you'll learn that there's nothing. It doesn't matter if it's tomatoes, doesn't matter if it's apples, or it doesn't matter if it's corn. If you're going to wait for something, you're going to have to have some patience. Let me ask you a question. If you're waiting on an apple tree to give you apples, and you go out and yell at the tree, will it help? No. How about if you throw a hissy fit? How about if you throw a temper tantrum around the tree and tell the tree how awful it is that it's, it is holding you back and it is not being the blessing to you that you proposed that it would be and that, and that, and that your feelings are being hurt because the tree isn't giving you what you want. Will that help? What causes a tree to produce faster? Answer, nothing. It has a cycle and it has a pattern and it has a rhythm and it has a season. And nothing you can do to speed it up, you just have to wait. What he's saying is, God intends for your life to be fruitful, and you're going to have to have some patience. Because you won't get saved on Sunday and figure out the mysteries of the universe the next day. You need some patience. What he's saying is, God is committing himself to a harvest. Now, I'm going to get... I'm going to get we ain't going to do a lot of shouting this morning. Well, some of you will shout because you'll get where I'm coming from. Some of you won't know whether it's okay to shout or not. Because God is committed to the harvest. I, I, we're, not, we're going to talk about some things this morning we don't usually talk about because it don't make you feel good. But until Jesus comes back, it isn't time for God's harvest to be in. See, what happens as soon as you get saved is you want Jesus to come back immediately. True? Yeah, you get saved and you're like, uh, okay, we're done here. Because uh, everything I care about is, is ready. It's buttoned up. I'm ready for, for the spaceship to come and take me to Yonderland. And the Bible says that God is not slow, but God is patient. And He does not want any to perish. He wants all to come to eternal life. What that means is Jesus will not come back until he has saved everybody he intends to save, until he has taught everything that he intends to teach, and when he is done, he has and done everything he put his mind to do, then he will come back. And the point is, if he's not back yet, it means he's not done yet. And sometimes we get so consumed in our own suffering that we forget that he is still helping a lot of people and he's still doing a lot of things. And sometimes it's like, Jesus, 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 could you just come back and get us today? I can't handle this anymore. And what Jesus' answer would be, I love you, but I also love a lot of other people. And I'm also helping them through what they're going through. And I'm trying to take care of everybody. And there are some days that if you're a believer and you believe the Bible 
and you believe in the kingdom of God and the resurrection of the dead and the wiping away of all the tears and the end of misery and pain and oppression and you're going to a place where they don't elect presidents anymore and you're going to a place where there's no more news reporters anymore and you're like, come quickly, Lord Jesus, sign me up. Like if Jesus comes back right now, I'm just going to be honest this morning. If Jesus comes back before I finish this message, I'm fine with that. Like I'm on the first bus load out. I got my ticket punched and I'm ready to go. And and I'm I'm sorry. Listen, I'm sorry. I, I love you. That's that's why God called me to be a pastor. I, I love you, and I'm sorry for all the the suffering that you are going through, but I want you to know that he is going to use the suffering in you to grow you in character. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 says something that makes most theologians' mind melt because the Bible says that Jesus was perfected through his suffering. That makes a lot of people very nervous, and I know preachers that won't even preach it, and Spurgeon didn't even want the book of Hebrews put in the Bible because it seemed to contradict a lot of the things that Romans taught, and especially because this book says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. Now, true or false, Jesus was perfect when he was in heaven. True or false, there's never been a moment when Jesus wasn't perfect. So how was Jesus made perfect if he was already perfect? Well, the difference is there are some things that you know and then you really get to know them once you have experienced them. So there is, the, uh, there is theoretical knowledge that you have about things, and then there is experiential knowledge about things, which means there are things you think you know, but you don't really know it until you've lived through it. Jesus knew about the human condition, but he really learned it when he lived through it, and he was made perfect through his suffering. Look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be all right. Will you do that? Just say, it's going to be all right. Yes, it's going to be all right. Because the more you experience, the more you learn, it's eventually going to be all right. Stuff that you thought was going to kill you back then didn't kill you. Pinch yourself. You're still here. And because it didn't kill you, it taught you, I can make it through this. I can survive this. This is not going to be the end of me because God brought, that brought me through that will surely bring me through this, and he ain't done with me yet. See, see there's experiential knowledge that always beats uh, theoretical knowledge. That's why young people who are about to get married are so adorable. Because they get a book and they go on the Google machine and they, they type in, what's it like to be married? And they think they know because they read a book. And young parents are the same way. They give them a book, what to expect when you're expecting. I read that book when we were expecting. After the baby came, know what I found out? That book's missing a few chapters. It didn't tell me what to expect in some of the things that I should have been expecting. Somebody say amen. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, I read a parenting book. I said, huh, wait till you get a kid. Because that is a variable yet you have not yet factored in. Uh, marriage sounds good on paper. Throw some people into it, it gets a little more complicated. Parenting sounds good on paper. Throw a kid or two into it, it gets a lot more complicated. It's just like communism. Sounds good on paper, but put some people in it, it doesn't work out so well. 
Now the Bible says there is a God. The Bible says that God is still on the throne. The Bible says Jesus Christ is good. He is altogether lovely. And in Him there is light and there is no darkness or shadow of turning. It says that God knows the end from the beginning. He is in all, above all, and through all. And the Bible says God tells us, I know the plans I have for you. That means God has planned out your life. He is sovereign, he is unequal, he is unprecedented, he is unparalleled, and has all power. And the question that that makes people scream is, well, 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 if that is true, why is my life like this? And I can simply tell you, have patience. He's not done yet. Jesus was crucified and laid in a grave. And when his disciples walked past him for three days, it would have been very easy for them to look at that grave and say, what's God doing? Have patience. He's not done yet. He's getting up. You have to endure what we're in right now is called the time between the times. There was a time he was alive, and there's going to be another time that he's alive, and we're in the time between the times. And some of you, your marriage used to be alive, and there's going to come a day when it's alive again, and you're just in the time between the times, and you got to have some patience. There was a time that your children were at home with you, and you felt blessed by their presence, and they loved you unconditionally, and there's coming another time when those when that family is going to be restored and you got to have some patience we're in the time between the times and there was a time when you felt close to God and you had an encounter with his Holy Ghost and you used to come to the altar and cry bitter tears and maybe you spoke in tongues and maybe you had the gifts of the Holy Ghost and there's coming a reunion a family reunion where we're all going to be together around the throne of God but right now we are in the time between the times and we don't know the suffering we're going to endure but have some patience you ain't done yet he He's not done yet. Hold on. Hold on. Endure it like a good soldier, Paul told Timothy. So, 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 so there's a day coming when the harvest will end. Let, let me set the tone for you. There's coming a day where there will be no more evangelists. Pulpits will be empty. There will be no more missionaries going on mission trips. Nobody planting churches. Because when Jesus comes back, his people are gone. And that's the final harvest. And until then, we need to be about the harvest. We need to be sowing the seeds of the gospel. We need to be pruning in our ministry. We need to seek how to get people closer to Jesus. I'm happy to report that here, in Pro I went back and looked through our reports, at Promise of Victory, since last June, we have had 36, that's three dozen, 36 people come to Christ in the last 12 months at Promise of Victory. Think about it like this. That's amazing. And if Jesus would have came back last June, you would have been ready. But none of them would have made it. And this is just one church in one small town in West Virginia. Imagine how many other people have been saved since you was ready to go last June. Listen, to last June I was preaching the same message. I'm ready. I'm ready. Come get us, Lord. Quick. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I was ready last June. But imagine, imagine how many people would have missed 
had he came back this time last year. And so God's patience is not because he doesn't love you. It's because he also loves them. And he's trying to get the harvest in. And I need you to know this. The Lord Jesus is coming back. I don't know when. I don't know when. One of the most popular topics that sells in Christian bookstores has always been a thing called eschatology. Eschatology is simply this. It's a study of end time events. And it's, 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 it's been the most high volume seller since I was a little boy. There was a book that came out, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. One day when we both get to heaven, I'm going to ask that guy that wrote that book, what was you thinking? Because listen, what happens is this. We get so sick of the planet that we want to pay somebody good money to tell Jesus to come get us. So we go to conferences. There are entire ministries made up of basically doing nothing but teaching end time events. And they've been teaching about the end times long enough that they have died. And it ain't the end still. Somebody say amen. And people come up to me all the time and say, Pastor, you studied end time events. When's Jesus coming back? I don't know. I don't know. The wisest thing you can tell somebody when they ask you that question is say, I don't know. Because only the Father knows. And he's not told anybody yet. So you can't anticipate it. You can't predict it. Anybody that says they can is misleading you. Because listen, none of us are on the planning committee. I am on the welcoming committee. I don't know when the party is, but I've got the balloons and I'm ready. Whenever he comes back, I'm ready to celebrate. But James says his brother's not coming back the way he did the first time. He's coming back different this time. Listen to verse 9. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Last few years has been rough for people. It's been rough for Christians. Because we look around the world and we see the corruption and we see how people are constantly uh, oppressed and there's hate and conflict and pride and something in a Christian says, I can't take it anymore. Somebody's got to say something. So I'm just going to tell this world how crazy and upside down and jacked up they are. But what the Bible says is ultimately Jesus Christ is the judge. So we shouldn't be looking down on others. Instead, we should be looking up to him to prepare ourselves to be judged by him. There is a day of judgment coming, but it's not just coming for them. It's coming for everyone. And that day, there will be one judge for us all, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're living in the path of the wrath of God. I, I, I know it sounds cute uh, for you to just be, well, uh, if I don't make heaven, at least all my friends will be there. It sounds fun now, but I promise there will be no party later. You are your own worst enemy. You are the biggest problem that you have. None of us are special. 
We're all broken and sinful like anybody else is. You don't have a good reason to sin. You don't have good excuses for your sin. Ultimately, you haven't just sinned against man. You haven't just sinned against your husband or wife, your mama and your daddy, your friends and your uncles and your relatives. You have sinned against a good, holy, and righteous God. You have violated every command that he has laid on your conscience. You have ignored the authority of his word. You are guilty and you stand condemned. And you're either going to be judged by Jesus or you're going to accept Jesus and allow Jesus to be judged for you. And we tend on this earth to divide everybody into uh, different categories. Are you on the political left or the right? Are, are you on the economic top or the bottom? Are you in the generation of the young people or the old people? But can I tell you, God doesn't divide us like that. It really comes down to this. Everybody, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, green, purple, left, right, up, down, sideways, bent, it doesn't matter. We are all marching toward a courtroom where Jesus Christ sits on the throne, has all authority, and he judges the quick and the dead. Everybody that's ever lived and breathed air in human history, and you need to be prepared for that day. You need to live for that day. You need to anticipate that day. Because hear me, the most important day of your life was not the day you were born, but the last day you live because that day sets the course for all of eternity and how you're going to spend so if you're not a Christian let me explain to you why we love Jesus so much and why you should too our God saw the sin and suffering that we were doing and he came down as a savior and I don't know about you but if I had the option of heaven or here I would pick heaven how many of you right now, if God said, hey, are you ready to leave? You'd be like, yes, please. Please, Can I just go home? If it's half as good as I read about, it's going to be awesome. Listen, I told y'all last week, I don't know if anybody's ever told you, but heaven's bougie, y'all. I mean, it, it is a place that you want to be at, okay? Jesus was in heaven. He was in an environment with no suffering. And he chose to come into an environment full of suffering. He was in an environment with no death. And he chose to come into an environment where he would ultimately die. He was in an environment of pure peace. And he stepped into this world full of pure chaos. And Jesus lived a life that you or I will never experience because he did it all with no sin. I'm nearly 50 years old, and I've been preaching this book for almost 25 years. Almost half of my life has been spent preaching this word, and my mind still needs hard reset every time I start thinking about what Jesus did for me. Can I tell you that when I think about Jesus' sacrifice, I cannot get over the absolute incredible mystery of the humility of Jesus, how he had it all and forsook it all for somebody like me. I don't know how you think about yourself, but when I think about what Jesus did for me, I can't imagine him looking over the balcony of heaven saying, well, I can't make it without Albert. Because I promise you, I feel like I could do better without Albert. I get on my own nerves. 
And how Jesus would ever want to give up heaven to come here so he could suffer and die for the likes of me, my mind goes into a short circuit. I don't know how to comprehend the awesomeness of God's love for somebody like me. And he come down and he doesn't sin, but he does suffer. I'm going to say that again. Because some of you automatically correlate sin with suffering. You think that if somebody is having suffering in their life, they've committed some kind of sin. But let Jesus force you to rethink your assumptions. Because Jesus Christ went through the worst pain and worst suffering in human history, and he was the best human who ever lived. You and I need to know that we we. We worship a Savior who suffered. And He suffered so that you and I could take His place. And He took our place. This is why I believe that, and I'll stand on it. You'll never convince me man wrote this book. Because nobody would write the story the way it's written. Because this book tells me you're pretty rotten. This book tells me that we're pretty awful. That humanity is worse than we think it is. As bad as school shootings and as bad as the political stuff and the sexual immorality and all the things that we see, it's even worse than what we see. That humanity was so broken that it could not be fixed. But this book also tells me that Jesus is better than I could ever imagine him to be. And what he did was greater than I could ever wrap my mind around. That's why the gospel is called good news. It's the best news. It's the greatest news that's ever been told. And what happens is this. Jesus took my place so I could be put in his place. He went from being the judge of me to being judged for me. And I don't deserve this. I don't know how you feel about yourself, but I drive myself crazy most of the time, and I know I'm not worthy of what he did for me. I don't know what you've been through, but here's what I do know. Everybody's going to go, everybody that's going to make it to heaven is going to go through some hell to get there. That's why he told us not to judge each other. Because all of our living is done in different measures of hell. Everybody that's around you is dealing with some kind of torment. Everybody that you're sitting near, everybody you work beside of, everybody in your family, and some of them people because of what they're done and what they've done, because you look at them and you judge them because I can't understand why anybody would ever want to stick a needle in their arm. Well, they don't understand why anybody would want to be a gossip like you either, but here we are. And what we do is we like to judge other people's sins and downgrade ours and make theirs seem so demonstrative. But the fact of the matter is, had it not been for the sin in your life, Jesus wouldn't have had to have died. It is an individual thing that we need to realize that we put him there. It wasn't us. It was me. What I have done. I was so incomprehensibly broken that it took the Savior of the world. God wrapped himself in flesh and died on a cross so I could have a chance to make it back to my father 
I was broken. I was a mistake. I was messed up, jacked up. I had all this weight on me, and Jesus came to set the captive free. And the captive wasn't them. The captive was me. And only when you start internalizing this thing will you realize that none of us make it out of here alive. It kills us all. Life is so hard that it kills every one of us. But there's hope on the other side. Listen to what James says in 10 through 12. As an example of suffering in patience, brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So he gives us two categories. He says, consider the prophets and consider Job. The prophets. Powerful. They're, they're superheroes. We read about Elijah calling down fire. Whew. Elijah took the very first first class flight. And it was in a fiery chariot. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. He's a superhero. Today, during a certain period of time, little Jewish boys don't dress up like Wolverine and Spider-Man. They dress up like Elijah. Them little Jewish boys will go out and say, give me some rocks and throw some water on it. We're going to call fire down. Because their superhero is one that they read about that did things that nobody else can do. We can't duplicate what these prophets did. But can I tell you something else about the prophets? When you're reading about them and they, they seem super extraordinary, if you keep reading, you'll find out they were also very human. Profoundly human. They cry, they bleed, they struggle, they get depressed, they suffer from anxiety, they lose sometimes, they lose their patience and their tempers. Here's exactly the way the Bible says it. As an example of suffering and patience. So they not only show us that you should be able to pray down the fire of heaven, but they also show us that you're going to go through some stuff that you don't want to go through. But you've got to learn how to hold on to God even though all hell is coming against you. And then he says, sums it up by this. He says, also, there's this guy named Job. He says, consider Job. Now, now Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Some of you are looking at me. Like you don't believe me. Well, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, but Job was written before Genesis was written. Now, the history of the world is older in Genesis, but Job was the first book. We don't know a whole lot about Job except this. We have a book that tells his story, and it's about a guy who had one bad day followed by another bad day and another bad and, and you keep reading it thinking, when's his good day? And then it's at the end. He had, he had ten children, seven sons, three daughters. He had a very successful business. He had servants and houses and livestock. Had everything that you and I would claim as a success. And in one 48-hour period, he lost everything. Kids are dead. Business destroyed. Homes are, are burned down. Fields are destroyed. Livestock's gone his health, he was healthy. His health has diminished to the point where he's withering away. He's got worms crawling out of his skin, and he's cutting himself with sharp pieces 
of, 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 of pottery. All in a 48 period, uh, hour period of time. And here's what we learn from Job. He doesn't know why he's going through the suffering. You have to understand, we're told about a conversation that was had about Job. But the conversation was not had to Job. God and the devil had a conversation. And the devil said, the only reason Job serves you is because you're so good to him. If you let me start taking some prizes away from him, he will curse you to your face. So God agreed to let the devil put suffering on Job. And that's easy for you and me to read about and say, that's what's going on. But the narrative of this story never reached Job. Job didn't know that God had allowed the devil to do this. Job did not know that God was in control. All Job knew was the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And no matter what kind of suffering I go through, I'm still going to bless the Lord. See, when James tells you to remember Job, he's not telling you to remember somebody who lost everything. He's not telling, he's not telling you to remember a guy who only had four people in his life. People start coming up to you when you're going through suffering, and they all have real helpful advice. See, Job is suffering, and his wife comes up and says, Why don't you curse God and die? Yeah, because you know what I need to do on the worst day of my life? I need to poke God in the eye with a stick. That's what I need to do. Thank you for your ministry of suicide and depression, dear. And then he's got these three friends who are wannabe theologians, and they're absolutely no help because they all gather by his bedside, and they say, okay, so we went down uh, uh, to, to Rod Parsley's school of, uh, of ministry, and we learned that suffering and sin are tied together. So because you're suffering, you must have some sin. Let's see it. So, so people will come around and start giving you advice that is not helpful when you're suffering. And we know something that Job didn't know. We know that the devil was behind it, but that he had to get God's permission to pull it off. Job didn't know what you and I know. Job has no idea why he is suffering. And can I tell you, you're not always going to know why you're going through what you're going through. You're not always going to have an answer directly from heaven why your kid is acting the way they're acting, why you got laid off and somebody else got to keep their job. You're not always going to know why your car motor blew up and the drug uh, dealer has got four brand new Mercedes Benz. You're not always going to get the answers to your suffering. But the one thing that you have to always do is look inside yourself and say, this is not put on me because it's going to kill me. This is put on me because God knew that if there was something that he had placed inside of me that needs to grow, and mature and get better and better I once told God that I wanted to be the best for him and he said how are you going to get there unless you let me put you through some stuff see see we've had some altar calls in the church where we ran up to the altar saying here I am Lord use me but you didn't realize in order for you to get used God was going to have to cut you off at the knees he was going to have to let you get drugged behind some horses he was going to have to let you go through some hell some of you even made the mistake of asking God God give me patience ha here you are here you are. And Job, in the 23rd chapter, Job says this. He says, my complaint today is a bitter one. It's okay to complain to God. He can handle your criticism. 
He said, my complaint today is a bitter one. If only I knew where to find God. If only I knew where to find God. He said, I'll go through the heartache. I'll go through the suffering. If I can just find God. It's not that I want to quit. I just want to know He's there. Because if He's there and I know He's there, I can endure anything. I can make it if I just know God is with me. He says, if only I knew where to find God. And here in verse 9, he says this. When God works on the left hand, I can't behold him. When he turns to the right hand or the south, he is concealed. He said, I can't see him. I'm going to say that again. He said, I can't see God. I can't. I'm going through hell, and I can't see God. I thought by now some of you Pentecostals would have discernment of spirits and be able to tap into what I'm preaching. He said, I'm going through the worst suffering of my life, and I can make it if I can just see God, but my problem is I can't see Him. I look to the south. He's hidden. I can't see Him. He's concealed. That doesn't say God ain't there. What it says is you can't see him. And I come here this morning to finalize this sermon with the thought like this. Sometimes it's not while you're going through the worst time of your life. It's not that God's not there. It's that he's there, but you find exactly what you're looking for. See, I'm tying this in back to the beginning. Sometimes you will find in your life exactly what you are looking for. He's there, but I can't see him. Why can't you see him? Because you will look for and find exactly what you are looking for. How many times in your life have you been going through suffering and you told yourself God left you, God abandoned you, you have felt alone, you have felt neglected, but the truth is this. You are finding exactly what you are looking for. Imagine, if you will, that Job had all this happen to him. The devil has a discussion with God. And he has no idea that the devil had to get his father's permission to do anything. It's easy when you're going through loss to see nothing but what you lost he said God's there but I can't see him sometimes your frustration looks like frustration but it's actually God working in your life sometimes it's called storms and all you see is the wind and the waves but it's actually God working in your life Sometimes all you see is the setbacks and what you used to have and you don't have it anymore, but it's God working in your life. Sometimes things are taking longer than you want them to. Sometimes you don't know it was God holding you back because he didn't want you to show up too soon because if you would have showed up before your blessing did, you wouldn't have walked into the, to the opportunity that God had already appointed for you. Here's the deal. You will find exactly what you are looking for. Can, can, can I just preach for a minute? 
Matthew chapter 7 is part of what's known as the Beatitudes. I'm trying to read the Beatitudes every day. I'm trying to go through it every day. If you go back earlier than chapter 7, Jesus in, in Matthew 6 and 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all this stuff will be added to you. So seek first the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 6 and 33. How many of you know 6 comes before 7? And then chapter 7, Jesus says, the one who seeks finds. So, so six comes before seven. Not a math major, but six comes before seven. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew 7, he says, the one that seeks finds. Everyone that seeks finds. I find, it, I find it somewhat disconcerting that Matthew 6 and 33 tells us exactly what to seek for. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew 7 it just says, seek. It was almost like Jesus was giving us a warning that you need to prioritize what you're looking for. You need to seek first the kingdom. Because then he tells you in chapter 7 that whatever you look for, you'll find. In other words, you can look for stuff that ain't God and miss God. He had just got finished telling the same crowd of people, don't judge the speck in your neighbor's eye when you've got this log sticking out of your eye he says don't overlook don't go seeking what's wrong in them don't go scanning their life and finding the speck that's off in them don't go looking because if you look for their problem you'll find one but you'll ignore this big problem that's sticking out of your own eye he's trying to give us a message that whatever it is that is in your heart and you're looking for it that's exactly what you're going to find. If you set your mind to find God, like Job said, he said, I know he's here, but I can't find him. Some of you, when you get into the middle of your struggle and your mess and your turmoil and your storm, all you can see is the financial collapse and the price of gas and this group don't like that group and he left me and he said he's never coming back and the kids are off and this is, and my health is falling apart and that's what you look for and that's what you're finding. But the Holy Ghost wants you to know on Pentecost Sunday that he ought to be able to change your vision and you ought to seek to find God in every situation and if you seek him you'll find him he said that if you look for God you'll find God but if you want to look for something else can I tell you I have lived enough days to know that when I put my mind on a mission to find misery the devil will help me look for it. 
If I put my mind on a mission to find what's wrong in my marriage, the devil will help me look for it. If I'm looking for rejection, I will find it. If I'm looking to get offended, I'll find a reason. You've heard me say it from the pulpit before, and only I'd be crazy enough to say something like this from the pulpit. If you look for a booger long enough, you'll pick one. Everything that you look for, you'll find. So some of us are wondering why we're going through the suffering that we're going through, and it's not that you can't endure the suffering. It's that the fact is you have got your mind set on the pain and the inconvenience and the setback and how discombobulated you are, and you need to seek for God because in the middle of the storm, Jesus came walking on the water. When Lazarus had been dead too long, Jesus showed up at the tomb. When the boat was about to sink, Jesus said, peace, be still. In other words, words you can't get away from him David said if I go down to hell you're there if I go up to heaven you're there you're everywhere so if you're everywhere I ought to be looking for it so every person in this room no matter what you're going through right now fix your eyes on Jesus he's there he's there and you need to learn how to seek him because whatever you look for is what you're going to find. You want evidence that God don't like you anymore, you'll find it. I said, I love you. And you only said, love you back. Does she really love me? I told them I was excited I was going to see them. And they said excited to see you too, but they only put one exclamation part. Points. Are they really excited? What are you looking for? I came here this morning to ask the question, what are you looking for? Because that's what you're finding. Your marriage has been a mess for how long? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Because I promise you the devil will help you find it. He will help you find misery and disappointment and rejection. Listen, you won't teach me nothing about rejection. I'm so good at rejection, I can reject you, or I can suffer the rejection before you have actually rejected me. Oh, I'm good at it. I was taught when I was a little boy not to expect nothing. That way you're never disappointed. So I can, re I can suffer rejection before you ever reject me. It's kind of like prejection. I'm so good at that way. Listen, I'm so bad about feeling rejected that I can't really receive from people. I have a hard time receiving love from people because I'm always expecting you to let me down. I'm always, I'm always expecting you to walk away from me. And if I put my guard up and keep my guard up, it won't hurt so bad when you finally do what I thought you would you looking for what, what are you looking for because I promise you this the Bible says that he neither goes nor comes because he's always there so in your suffering he's there and in your storm he's there and when that marriage is rocky 
He's there. And when you were addicted, and when you were lost in sin, and when you were undone and you were feeling guilt and shame and condemnation, and if you keep looking for it, the devil will help you find it. But you need to know that you have a God who loves you so much that He took the cross and He took the condemnation and He took the guilt and He took the shame so you don't have to suffer with it. And you need to look at the cross because the cross is the message of mercy. It is the message of redemption. It is the message that God so loved the world that He gave to you what you could not give to yourself. So stop looking to feel guilty and stop looking to feel undone and stop looking to feel dirty because God if he has washed you in the blood you are his and you are clean and you need to let go of everything that's been holding you back somebody that feels this put your hands together jump to your feet and give God a shout of praise most altar services ask the question what do you need most altar services ask the question, come up, what do you need? This altar is going to be different because I'm going to ask you, what are you looking for? Because some of you need an attitude adjustment this morning. Not that you're mean or hateful. You might be. That's all. <laughs> he can fix that too. But some of you just need an attitude adjustment because like me, you have a hard time finding the good. And you overlook the good because you expect the bad. So this morning, I want to ask you, what are you looking for? Could it be that what you've been going through it hasn't been as bad as you thought it was? But you've been finding all the bad and overlooking all the good? Could it be that what you have been miserable about, had you fixed your eyes on Jesus before now, you would have endured it when you thought it was going to kill you but you couldn't get your eyes off of the bad and you were overlooking the good I'm not going to drag this out this morning but if you're here and you know that you know that you know I need to fix my eyes back on Jesus I want you to come to this altar this morning and find a place to pray if you can't come here find a place to pray at your seat uh, put your face in this I don't care how you do it but some of you right now, he did not waste this message. This is for somebody in this room. I put my face toward the cross, and I expect to see something good. Every person in this room fights negativity and depression and anxiety and imbalances. Everybody. But some of us focus on it to the point that we miss all the good. Jesus wants to fix that today. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Because you're finding it. Everything you're looking for is what you're finding.